Howdy folks, this is Jimmy Aiken, and I wanted to let you know about a special offer. When you become a patron of the Cordial Catholic Podcast at $8 or more a month, Keith will send you a copy of my new book, The Bible is a Catholic Book. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. Hi, hey, welcome to the Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm K. Albert Little, an evangelical, non-denominational convert to Catholicism. And if there's one thing that I realized as I was looking into the Catholic Church, as I was journeying towards Catholicism, it was how little I understood the Catholic faith. How little Catholics around me, in fact, understood their faith. This podcast is meant to fill in that gap. We talk to influential Catholic thinkers about Catholic topics from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this episode is no exception. I'm so excited to welcome back Rod Bennett. We talked to Rod about the great apostasy theory way back in episode 7, and I'm happy to have him rejoin me this week to talk about the canon of the Bible. Where did we get the Bible from? That's our topic, and it's a fantastic one. You know, when I emailed Rod to ask him to come back on the show, he was more than excited to come back. I gave him a range of topics and asked if he wanted me to make up any questions for him to guide our discussion, and he said, no way, Jose. Let's talk about the Bible, and what I'm going to tell you is going to blow your mind. It's crazy stuff. It turns out, it did not disappoint. He was absolutely right. We dig deep, way deep, into the origin of the canon of Scripture. How is the Bible put together? How are some books included and other books not included? How did that all come together? And how come Catholic Bibles, which include the extra books, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which includes books that we Catholics call deuterocanonical, Protestants usually call them apocryphal, you may have heard of the apocrypha, how did those books get into some Bibles and not into other Bibles? In other words, why are Catholic Bibles bigger? And how did the early church play a role in that? As it turns out, Rod has just finished writing a book about that exact topic. Great timing, hey? This discussion is a great one. I think you'll really enjoy it. Rod has just a fantastic way of spinning a tale. That's why his books are so popular. Before we begin the show, I want to thank one new patron. Thank you, Ellie, or Eli, I'm not sure how that's pronounced, and I'm very sorry. I still appreciate your support very much. You know, guys, it's patrons like that, like you guys, who support me every week, every month, day in and day out, that help make this show possible. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. If you want to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. Even $1 a month goes a very, very long way in helping to keep this show running. Pay for all the associated costs. And I'm so grateful, guys. I'm so humbled, you know, that this thing is even working out. And it's growing by leaps and bounds. And I'm so grateful to be used this way by God. To bring Catholic thinkers to you, to your ears, to your speakers, to your home and car and wherever else you listen to this podcast. I'm so grateful. Thank you guys for welcoming me into that space week after week. Thank you those especially who support me financially 
and through your prayers and fasting. Know too that I am praying and fasting for you as well and your intentions. I'm so grateful, guys. Thank you so much for making this possible. Thank you so much for listening. Please listen to this episode with Rod. It's a great one. And enjoy. Welcome back to the Cordial Catholic Podcast. I am excited to welcome back a returning guest. He's a sought-after speaker, the author of a number of books, including Four Witnesses, The Early Church in Her Own Words, The Apostasy That Wasn't, and Bad Shepherds. And he's working on a new book, in fact, it's coming out shortly. And uh, I'm happy to have him back. It's Mr. Rod Bennett. Hello, Rod. Hi, Keith. It's good to be back again. We're going to talk about uh, where the Bible came from for this episode, and you let me know before we begin recording that you are just finishing off, I think finished off today, a new book that traces out kind of the the history of how Christians approached and used the Old Testament. Well, right, yeah, that... Uh... That uh, I did. I did finish the final edits today on a book that's going to be called Scripture Wars, and it's coming out from Sophia Institute Press later this fall. It's something that I've been working on for four years, probably all told, on and off, and uh, it's probably gotten more preparation and more uh, study out of me than any other thing I've done. So. Uh, uh, you know, I feel a little more confident that I know what I'm talking about this time. <laughs> so that's that's a good thing. <laughs> um, hey, well, your other your other books are fantastic and so well researched and written. So this one's even something better to look forward to. Well, that's I hope exciting. I hope so. I uh, uh, it, it's it's meatier than anything I've done. Uh, the I was encouraged to write the, this book by Dr. Scott Hahn, who, and uh, in order to get me started on the topic. And it get me interested in the topic that he thought would be a good idea to have a book on. Uh, he sent me uh, a list of books I needed to read, and it was like getting a huge homework assignment. You know? <laughs> so I educated myself on the topic, and uh, uh, it's been, ever since then, I've been trying to communicate what I picked up from all that material in in a interesting, entertaining form. Uh, in a tone, a tone similar to to what I used for uh, apostasy that wasn't, which some people seem to have liked. So uh, this is meaty stuff, though. I uh, I definitely was having to uh, to I won't say struggle, but I was having to work out in order to keep up. So, uh, uh, but I that the the object of the game was to translate all of it into language that the average person. Uh, could understand. So uh, that that makes the job doubly challenging for a translator, which is what I considered myself here. But uh, uh, I think that it's going to be a, a theological mystery story that will engage people's interest, even much more casual uh, students. So uh, that was the object of the game anyhow. But yeah, the title of the book is Scripture Wars, and the uh, subtitle, which you give us a tie-in to what you want to talk about today is how Justin Martyr saved the Old Testament for Christians. 
Well, I'm curious to dig into that with you. I want to lay out for you uh, a thought here first. And this is kind of where where I came from. And I wonder if your background is a little bit similar. Okay. I know both of us are converts. Uh, where I came from, I mean, I had kind of a radical coming to Christ experience in high school. And I got my um, New King James version of the Bible. And uh, I had no idea really where it came from or anything like that. And the first time I encountered a question of who made the Bible or how we got the Bible was when an um, evangelical pastor I was working for said to me, what's more important, scripture or tradition? And I said, scripture, of course, Bible or Jesus is always the answer in Sunday school. And he said, well, but who put the Bible together? Wasn't that the tradition of the church? And that question was really what began for me my journey into Catholicism. It took a number of years, but that was the pebble in my shoe, right? Well, one of, one of the ways I put that into shorthand for people is I say, uh, the Bible uh, is inspired, every word of it, but the contents page. In other words, <laughs> well, I won't say the contents page isn't inspired, but how do we know that it is? In other words, it's not part of the text. And the contents page of your Bible is is not part of the Bible. It's something that men came up with. And they had to come up with the list of books to put on that contents page. How did they do how did they do that? And how do we know that they did it right? That's that's the question in a nutshell. All right. Tell tell us how. <laughs> <laughs> We're all dying to know. Oh, oh goodness. Well, yeah, yeah, it's uh I'll surprise everybody, maybe even some of my Catholic uh, co-religionists, by saying that it's not as simple as it sounds. <laughs> even sometimes Catholics will jump quickly to the idea that uh, the Catholic Church made the Bible, which is uh, not a good way to say it. You know, there's God made the Bible, okay? God made the Catholic Church, too, but uh, that's a kind of a, an odd way to come at it. To say that the Church made the Bible is to... Uh, deliberately, or maybe not deliberately, but it's to, uh, it, it, it sounds as if the, the, the church had a list of, had a bunch of books and went through and, and picked out the ones she liked. And that because she has the gift of infallibility, the answer came out right. And that isn't really what happened. And the story of, of what happened and how it happened is a lot more interesting than that, but it's also a lot more complicated than that, <laughs> and and more complicated <laughs> than I realized until I started working on this uh, uh, this most recent book. Uh, for one thing, um, the candidates for biblical uh, books of the Bible is a pretty long list. In other words, if by if by Books of the Bible, we mean Hebrew religious texts from the, the period covered by the Old Testament, then that's a much larger list than, uh, uh, than what, what made the final cut. Just like the New Testament, uh, writings, that is, writings made by Christians in the first century and, and, and second century is a much longer list than what made the final cut. So, the, the, the idea that 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 you often hear from a from a casual Catholic uh, apologist that the uh, that the Church uh, made the list in you know the 300s A.D. 
and before that there wasn't any canon, uh, it is a not careful enough way to say it because it gives it gives the wrong impression. It gives the the impression that uh, that the church bestowed inspiration onto these books, and the church didn't. The the it's a dogma of our faith as much as the Protestant faith or Protestant faiths that uh, the inspiration that these books received was from God in the person of the Holy Spirit at the time they were being written. So there's the, the church can't make a book that was written in, in 600 B.C. into Scripture in three, 390-something A.D. Uh, it either got it or it didn't when it was being written. What the church does is recognize the list of which books received this and which didn't. And but she doesn't do it by by some kind of uh gift of divination where she puts her hand on the book and God tells her whether 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 it got the uh, uh whether it got the special sauce or not that's sometimes the impression that people get when when they listen to uh to Catholics uh putting this idea over and uh really it's it's a more it's a much more complicated idea than that still a catholic idea so don't get me wrong i'm not saying the catholic idea of how this happened is wrong i'm just saying that the the pop version that you sometimes hear is uh so truncated and so uh uh, uh unbalanced that it it sometimes doubles our problem when we're trying to talk to uh, non-catholic christians makes makes the problem worse makes it sound like we're we're claiming the, the our right over the god of the word of god which we don't do of course yeah that's a really interesting way of putting it i've heard from some people in protestant circles uh, when i mean that question was posed to me tradition or scripture what's kind of more important and i mean the way the question was phrased th there's some debate on what the answer would would be i think but one of the counters to that would be the idea that well I mean, the Catholic Church didn't necessarily have any authority in putting together the Bible or affirming the Bible. The Bible was, um, the books that made it into the canon were books that the people, the Christian faithful, saw as most important. And it was those books that were put into the canon, and the Church had, had little to do with it. Well, the problem with that is that uh, it's an absolute historic fact really indisputable if you study the, the writings of the fathers, and you don't have to study very deeply. The Bible of the early church was the Septuagint. In other words, the Old Testament in Greek, the Septuagint version, plus the Greek originals of the New Testament. So many people that make this argument that the people, the voice of the people spoke, the faithful uh, said what was the Bible. They were carrying down, you know, the traditions of the, of the church. Well, the tradition they carried down has got a lot of extra material in it, and missing some material that's in that KJV that you mentioned. In other words, not just the the Septuagint doesn't just have the uh, seven extra books that uh, are sometimes called the Deuterocanonical books or uh, apocryphal books. If you if you speak to English Christians, uh, it's got all the other books, or many of the other books have got. Uh, uh, Huge variations also, either shorter or longer than uh, uh, than the version that's in the, the King James Bible. You know, the book of Daniel is about a fifth longer 
the book of Job is a lot shorter. Uh, I mean, it's like that right on down the list. So, and, and there's textual variations galore, not just small mistakes, but whole sentences that either are left out or put back in longer than the, than the King James Version or shorter. And, uh, so if, if you're claiming that, uh, that the, uh, Bible has been received by tradition from the voice of the people, you know, well, the voice of the people definitely spoke on, for the first 600 years of Christianity, the Bible for Christians was, uh, was the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. So, uh, that, that's the first problem I see with that kind of an approach. You, you, most of the people who, who would make that argument, uh, are, are not the sort of, they, they have a tradition that, and their, their tradition received from Luther and Calvin is that the Septuagint version is too long. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. I was actually, um, I was attending a Protestant service with some family and I don't remember what book we were reading from, but, uh, the, the pastor who was, who was, uh, reading through this scripture was, you know, inviting us to follow along in our Bibles. And so I was following along in my, in my Bible. Yes, I am Catholic and yes, I have a Bible, which is right there a misconception. Which I, think some <laughs> oh, people... I hope somebody took a picture. <laughs> it's rare. It's rare, but a few of us have Bibles. And I was following along and we came to a part where the pastor said, I wish I could remember what he was he was preaching on, but he said, and and you know at this point we have to assume, kind of assume what this uh, what this hero in the story is thinking because scripture doesn't tell us. And I'm looking at my Bible, and it's right there. in My Bible is the whole <laughs> inner monologue of this character. Do, do you remember thought, what, what story? Do you remember about? what story it was? I just I can't remember what story it was. It's obviously in the Old Testament, right? And it was one of the so and and I almost stood up and said, "What is this man preaching? It's right here in the Bible." Right. Until right, right. I realized, it took me about five minutes to realize that I had my Catholic edition of the Septuagint, and he had um, his 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 Hebrew version, right? The uh, King James Bible is based mainly on the what's called the Masoretic text. This is the approved Hebrew text that St. Jerome found the synagogues, the Jews, using in the late 4th century, so the 490s or so A.D. And uh, that version he discovered was quite, and was to his shock. That's how uh, deeply steeped the early church and the church fathers were in the Greek Bible, the Septuagint. He was shocked when he went and talked to the rabbis to find that their Bible was so different than the one he was familiar with. Yeah, yeah. Well, I saved myself some embarrassment there. I almost stood up and shouted at this pastor because I thought, it's right here in my Bible, until I realized that our Bibles were different. Well, you bring up a really interesting point. Uh, you bring up the point of, uh, of how is it that we have two different Bible texts. I'm not talking about the translations. And why is it that the Septuagint is so much longer than the, uh, or so much different? It's, it's strange, the differences in the Septuagint Bible. And let's pause for a minute for, for people who, who aren't quite up to speed on the Septuagint. It's a translation made for dispersed Jews about 200 years before Christ. Uh, many, probably uh, four-fifths of all the Jews in the world at that time were Hellenized Jews, that is, Jews of the Roman Empire who either had Jewish ethnicity or background or something, or else were God-fearers, you know, pagan uh, quasi-converts, some of them actual converts, 
who uh, had gotten interested in uh, uh, in the in the Old Testament writings, et cetera, et cetera. A translation was made for scholars and for you know literate people uh, by King Ptolemy. It was order, ordered it about two hundred years before Christ, and this. The Septuagint means the version of the 70, and the, the 70 are 70 scholars that were picked out at that time to uh, uh, to make a translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek so that the ordinary people of the Roman Empire could read it if they wanted to. Uh, it was mainly made for uh, dispersed Jews of the Roman Empire, Jews outside the Holy Land, but not exclusively for them. There's good evidence that many pagan philosophers read it, uh, uh, you know, but at any rate, so that's that's the short story on the Septuagint. But the Septuagint, as we've been talking about, is quite a lot different than the uh, the text that both the King James and many other modern Bibles are made from. One of the most interesting things to know and important things to know about the Septuagint is that there are about 350 quotations from the Old Testament within the pages of the New Testament. And of that 350 or so, the uh, well over 300 of them are word for word from the Septuagint version. Literally a taking of the Greek words out of the Septuagint and putting them amongst the Greek words written by the apostles for the New Testament. So direct quotations, which is the highest possible complement to the Septuagint version. And it's also uh, proof of what I was saying earlier that to a degree that people have really forgotten, the Septuagint was the Bible of the early church, beginning with the apostles, and continuing on through the church fathers until uh, the influence of Jerome kicked in good in the uh, in the in the fifth century, and fifth and sixth centuries. So, uh, uh, at any rate, that thus the Septuagint. But the question of of how it is that the, the apostles and the early church use a Bible so different than the one that one that most of us have today is a pretty pretty fascinating and pretty compelling question, don't you think? <laughs> I was going to say, you want to go ahead and answer for us? <laughs> does it seem compelling to you? It does to me. It seems very compelling. And actually, I had written an article um, on my blog a while back now. It's back in January uh, this year, 2019. And I was I, I called it the Tough Questions in Quotation Series because I found what you're discussing here to be the case. And I was kind of shocked at... How often the New Testament writers, uh, the apostles, um, quote from the Septuagint. And I kind of posed the question, well, how can Bible-only Christians trust their Bible if the Bible that they have isn't maybe the complete Bible, that even the early church, the earliest church, the apostles, and I would go so far as to say Jesus himself, right, would have affirmed yeah, you're beginning to see the uh, the scope of the problem. You know, your story that you were telling a little while ago is pretty fascinating. The the story about how you you found the uh, homilist uh, uh, preaching from a different version than you did. This is something we find. It, it's a, a strange little mystery story or subtext in the writings of the early apologists, people like Clement of Alexandria and Justin Martyr. Hippolyta Origen does it several times, and that is. They 
interact with Jews and they have discussions and apologetic uh, uh, discussions with uh, uh, Jews, and they find very often that they'll quote a text to a Jew, such as, you know, the prophecy that a virgin shall conceive, you know, and that they find that the uh, Jew has a different version in his Bible. In other words, the, the, uh, the, the version that is quoted in Matthew's Gospel, in the prophecy of the virgin birth, the virgin shall conceive. You'll call his name Emmanuel and all the rest of it. Uh, that version, the, these early apologists found that the Hebrew Bibles didn't say that. They used a much less specific word. They said, they say, uh, a young woman shall conceive. And this left the impression with these early apologists, and there's, there's several other examples of this, prominent examples of this, where Origen or Justin or somebody makes, I, I think, we, well, we know now, they make a kind of a rash accusation that you Jews took these things out or you changed them so that uh, it wouldn't uh, look so bad uh, that you aren't becoming Christian. Uh, we, we now know that that was a mistake. We now know that the differences that they're stumbling over are differences in Hebrew texts. In other words, the text from which the Septuagint was made, that is the original Hebrew text that was used 200 years before Christ, is actually different than several other Hebrew texts of the Bible from which different versions were made. Now it's a very long story and too long to go into in this in this little episode, but and it's in the new book. Um, the uh, we now know that there were at least three very distinct, uh, distinctly different versions of the Hebrew texts of the Old Testament books in the days of the early church. The the version, as we've already been talking about, the ver- well, it used to be thought that. The differences in the Septuagint or the Hebrew texts that Jerome looked at, it used to be thought that the, that the Septuagint had been tampered with or that it had been corrupted over time. It, the, the, the differences, not, not the extra books, but the differences within the, uh, within the canon everybody agrees on were, uh, you, many times they were accounted for as, uh, as being uh, glosses or extra material that had crept in through the years, and the gaps were accounted for as being. In other words, the Septuagint was just a really corrupted uh, or spotty, uh, uh, trans- bad translation of the Masoretic text, and we now know that that isn't the case. That was kind of the standard way of dealing with it, and it's one of the reasons why. Many Catholic Bibles, even today, uh, use the Masoretic text, the shorter text, because for years it was assumed that we don't know how all this extra stuff got into the Septuagint, but it must be a mistake because the Jews have that's their that the, the these books are the their books. They belong to the Jews, so the Jews must know which version we're supposed to use. And since they say it's not the Septuagint, it must not be the Septuagint. After all, our version is just a translation. But now we know, and this is interesting, one of the reasons you haven't heard this before probably, I hadn't heard it, is that it's, uh, it's in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So we've only known this for 47 years, for what, no, sorry, it was 1947 they were discovered. We've only known it for 70 years or so, and it takes a while to digest things like this. 
But the Dead Sea Scrolls proved, because the fragments of the books are there, that uh, something like 15% of all the Bible texts found at Qumram, the place where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, match the Septuagint better than they do the Hebrew, the, the Masoretic version, the version the Jews use and from which the King James is made. So we've got archaeological evidence now that the Septuagint is not a bad translation of anything. It's a translation of a different set of texts. Does, does that, or is your head getting all explodey at this point? <laughs> yeah, hey, you promised me. When I, when I was talking to you earlier, you said you're going to tell me crazy things I won't, I won't believe. And you're, <laughs> you weren't lying. This is great. Yes. Now, it's a, now, if somebody out there in our audience is saying, well, my goodness, you're saying then that 200 years before Christ, there were three different, significantly different uh, versions in Hebrew of the Old Testament books. That is what I'm telling you. <laughs> and uh, as, as nutty as that sounds. And I'm sure that somebody in the audience is saying, well, how could you ever know what the Bible is then? And that's a good thought. That's a good thought. Now let me let me give you a let me give you a clue. The uh, apostles used the Septuagint version, right? <laughs> yep. In other words, if it was good enough for the apostles, I mean that is the church speaking. Yeah. Well, that's the way that seems to to me to to be the way that that question is answered. Right. right. Well, here's the apostles using that version. So, I mean, so what if there were there were ten different versions of those or translations of those the Hebrew scriptures? You have the church coming along, and if we believe that church is inspired by the Holy Spirit, it, especially in the very very beginning, they 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 use the Septuagint, right? Well, even even a clearer way to say it than that. Yes, it's the church, but it's the church at her very foundings. In other words, the apostles are not just leaders of the church or members of the church. They're the founders of it, under Christ himself, of course. They're, they're so much uh, the foundations that their names are written on, the names of the twelve apostles are going to be written on the twelve pillars that hold up the new Jerusalem, according to the Bible itself. So these guys, are, these guys under Christ are the foundations of the church. And... These guys, meaning the people who wrote the New Testament epistles and all the rest of it, the, the, the men who, who created the New Testament, and also just told us which version of the Old Testament to use, uh, voted for the Septuagint in a really overwhelming way. In other words, they, they don't seem ever to have used a different version. Even the, even the quotes that, uh, I mentioned that 350 quotes exist and that over 300 of them are directly from the Septuagint. Even the ones that are left rarely match the Masoretic text. They are, uh, they are, they seem to be paraphrases or slight, which is pretty common in the early church. People, people didn't quote, uh, they, they weren't so careful to, to make direct quotations as we are now. The early fathers do this too. They, they give us kind of their memory of, uh, of, of uh, a, a passage from the Old Testament. But at any rate, all of this to say that the presence of the Septuagint, the presence of a big chunk of the Septuagint within the pages of the New Testament means something. And it means something for this question of how can we know which Hebrew text was the Hebrew, was the, was the Bible of the, 
of Christ, really. I mean, uh, the, the reason that the apostles word on this matters is that Jesus himself said, whoever hears them hears me. He says, and it also, we're also told that, that he, whoever he sends are the people that we're supposed to listen to. And it, and these are the men that he made his revelation to. Jesus himself wrote nothing. He, 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 uh, commended his doctrine to these 12. So uh, the, the fact that we know that the Septuagint had their approval in the strongest possible way, and that we know that uh, the Septuagint uh, kept that pride of place in the church for centuries afterwards, uh, gives us an important clue, to say the least, about uh, which of these uh, early Hebrew texts had God's uh, uh, fullest approval. So I I want to swing around to, and maybe this will be too too big of a of a mic drop to drop at this point in the episode. <laughs> but I want to swing around to the thought that I had because this is where I got started on this question, and it was if if I as a a Bible alone evangelical who believes the Bible was this inspired text from God and this is my rule of faith and everything I need to know to live my Christian life comes from this Bible. And I suddenly find out that the Bible that I am reading from does not contain all the books that even the apostles would were referencing. Right. What does that what does that mean for my faith? Well, it, it should encourage you to try harder to get an answer to the question of how these books got chosen and how we know that the right books are there. And the answer to that, I'll just cut to the chase, is that the uh, it's, it's there because of apostolic tradition. In other words, the church didn't try to put their her stamp on, uh, uh, you know, didn't sit down with a jar of, of 300 scrolls and decide from amongst the 300 based on her own uh, sense of what's inspired and what isn't. The church looked for the tradition of the apostles. Now, we don't have this written down in so many words, but we do know that basically what happened when the church came to sit down for the first time and make a canon, a, a list of what goes on the Bible's contents page, uh, it's surprisingly late, by the way. Several heretical groups did it first. <laughs> In fact, it's it's kind of what uh, uh, caused the church to say, you know, we've got a lot of traditions on this, but uh, uh, but it's like you know there are a few uh, blurry spots around the edges, and maybe since people are making new canons now, maybe we need to go ahead and nail this matter down. So, uh, uh, so when the church, this does explain why the church only gets around to official canon making pretty late, you know, in, in the, in the 300s AD. Uh, because before that, they were relying on a tradition that was very widespread, very firm, a lot like what you were saying, the sense that the people had decided. That's not too far wrong. In other words, if you looked at all of the apostolic churches, if you looked at the Roman Empire and, and its fringes, and you looked at all the churches that had been founded by the apostles and that were still in the hands of apostolic men, in other words, bishops that had been ordained by a bishop that had been ordained, etc., back to the apostles themselves. All the early churches, Antioch and Ephesus and all, all the rest of them, they all had 
pretty strong, clear uh, uh, lists in of which books they were willing to read in the church. That's really why we need a canon. Is in the early centuries, you you see that it was just as we do in the mass today. There was public, solemn liturgical reading of the scriptures as part of the mass and you wanted to make sure that you didn't read merely human literature as part of that solemn act of worship so they had a list of books that could be read as part of the mass and books that couldn't and that was the first effort to uh to make a canon so to speak but these churches all these apostolic churches spread all over the world in that day when there wasn't much uh, telecommunications. <laughs> In other words, it was awfully hard to communicate down the street, not not much less to Constantinople. <laughs> you know, uh, the uh, uh, in in those days, the churches all had pretty much the same books in their library, and like a modern synagogue, it really was a library. There's almost synagogues have a back room with uh, scrolls, and uh, uh, the this is what the early churches were like too. It wasn't a book with between covers. It was jars full of scrolls. But uh and for the most part, every church had the same scrolls. The 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 chief scrolls that nobody uh uh ever questioned make up, you know, probably eighty percent of Old and New Testament. But on the fringes, if you looked at the whole broad swath of what the early church was like from 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 one end of the empire to the other, it was true that there were some local differences. Like if you went, like oddly enough, Western Europe, which we think of as the heart of Catholicism nowadays, uh, was kind of the pagan rustic backwater in the 4th century. And uh, as a result, surprisingly enough, some of the books that you and I would think were most obvious, like Second Peter or the book of Revelation, uh, but for whatever reason, most Western churches didn't have those in their jars. And if you went to the Eastern Empire, the opposite end of uh, of the empire, to Constantinople and and Ephesus and Jerusalem and Antioch, the cities of the East, they they had a good warm welcome for Revelation, but they looked askance at some of the books that we uh, uh, had always held to be uh, canonical because they. Their jars didn't have them, or didn't often have them. So, and in, and also in one or two places, there were scrolls that people weren't quite sure about. Like an example would be the uh, the Epistle of Saint Clement. Clement's mentioned in the New Testament as a co-worker of Saint Paul, and uh, he later became a successor of Peter as one of the early bishops of Rome. And he wrote a letter that, that dates from about the same time as the Gospel of John. And that is his his so-called first epistle, which came out about, we think, about 95 A.D. Now, that's pretty early. Like I say, it, it may actually predate uh, some the Gospel of John or some of the other really early, uh, uh, some of the early the books that are in the undoubted New Testament. So people thought, okay, here's an apostolic man who was on good terms with, with the uh, apostles, and he wrote a very inspiring letter, and we've, it's always kind of been handed down to us as one of our heirlooms, along with Paul's letters. So maybe this should belong, this belongs in the, uh, in the collection. So there was, 
I mentioned that 80% that everybody agreed on. There was there was a little fringe that needed to be reconciled. And so what actually happened in the 4th century was the the churches began to compare under pressure from heresy, groups like the Marcionites and the Ebionites and other heretical groups began to make canons of their own before the Orthodox Church did. And the church said, well, okay, let's start comparing our jars and let's recognize, re- reconcile this. And that's what really happened in the late 4th century, when you sometimes hear people say that the Catholic Church created the Bible. But that's not the best way to say it. What she did was, was uh, nailed down some ambiguities. Yeah, and exercise that authority that they that those bishops and those uh, leaders in charge of, of of doing that saw themselves as being given by Christ, right? Right, right, right. Well, one of the ways that they did it was they brought in St. Augustine, St. Augustine of Hippo. They had him come in and, and give testimony to the condition of the Bible in the Western churches and and some of the uh, research he had done. And so he was a, he was an important voice on this subject. And uh, at the end of the period where they were trying to compare jars, uh, they uh, uh, sent a letter to the Pope, and the Pope at that time said, yeah, okay, I think this commission has done its job. These are the books that come down to us from the apostles. And so a list was published for the first time. Not exactly the same as what even very orthodox churches at times had had in the previous centuries, but uh, uh, a list of that where the work of reconciling the whole church's mind on the subject had been taken into account, and uh, the, uh, a list was finally published. Not created, really, but just uh, uh, just published finally. Yeah, I mean, the church is aff- is affirming the the canon, right? Not making it up from from whole cloth, not inventing it from some something right. or, or, or from nowhere. Or not granting right, not granting canonicity to books. Just saying these are the books that received inspiration at the moment they were being written, and these are the books that didn't. And and they're thinking, okay, or is this like they've got some sort of psychic link to God so they can know this fact? No. They judged it by apostolicity. In other words, the authority of the Bible really is the authority of the apostles. In other words, the books that come down to us and are in the both Old and New Testament, by the way, have the authority of the apostles. This is the message that the apostles passed down to the churches. Yes, it required a little bit of, of, uh, of reconciling. It required a little bit of... Uh, of historical digging to to find out what they had said, okay. But the authority of the thing is rested rests on the apostles themselves. They're the ones who, you know, people might say, well, I, you know, how did how did mere men get infallible authority? Well, you know, they got it from Jesus again, who said, whoever hears these is hearing me, and whoever uh, refuses to hear these uh, is not hearing me or my Father. So. The apostles, uh, yeah, well, for example, the apostles wrote a good portion of the Bible. Okay, so if they were in, infa- if Matthew was infallible when he wrote the Gospel of Matthew, <laughs> which all Christians agree on, or all all traditional Christians anyway, uh, then the uh, that 
is a way of saying that Matthew was infallible, at least while he was writing that book. And so what the church says is that the apostles had traditions on this subject which they implanted like a garden in the churches that they built. The churches remembered what they'd been taught and they handed it down. And by the time a formal list was being made, you know, books between two covers were just beginning to be invented in the late 4th century. So the idea of a contents page literally becomes true at this point. And uh, uh, so for the first time, a need has arisen serious enough to go and look at all the churches and all their collections and to try to reconcile the list. I, I think one of the criticisms uh, to turn the idea of the Catholic Church making the Bible on its head. And I've heard this before, too, was, well, it took so long for the Catholic Church to decide on what books were in the Bible. Uh, the Catholic Church just kind of threw everything in there. They kind of made it up because they didn't do anything until until the 300s. I mean, you've addressed that by explaining, and I think this is the case for lots of Catholic Catholic doctrine and dogma is that the church doesn't necessarily define something until it's challenged to define that. Right, right. right. Uh, the church <laughs> is uh, preeminently conservative. In other words, she's very sparing in her gift of uh, uh, gift of uh, declaring dogma and doesn't really do it until she's absolutely forced to do it. And uh, which is, you know, why we've had two uh, uh, papal definitions on the Pope's own authority since the infallibility of the Pope was declared, and that and that's because that's two times in two hundred <laughs> years or almost two hundred years, and uh, that's a uh, that's a sign of of what's always happened in the Church. The Church has only rarely been forced to settle uh, that kind of a debate. For the most part, she lets people talk does finally come to a, come to a conclusion when it's absolutely necessary. But for the most part, she just passes down the stuff she's always said. But the church's ordinary magisterium is not miraculous. The church's ordinary magisterium is, so long as we keep saying the same thing we've always said, we're going to be okay since the apostles founded the church. <laughs> so uh, uh, that's uh, uh, pretty conservative. So what do we do then? And I mean, this is where I found myself being challenged and obviously eventually becoming Catholic when I, I, I found myself unable to stand on a faith which said that the Bible alone is, is the authority, not only because I saw people that I knew around me and, and different denominations and faith traditions disagreeing on how to interpret the Bible, but also because the Bible didn't drop out of the sky. There had to be some authority that affirmed the books that were in there. Yeah. So, so, so my my question is is what do we? I guess we become Catholic, right? <laughs> is the well, answer the, to what the do best, we do? The best way, you know, when your professor said or your pastor said, uh, which was more important, the Bible or tradition? It's kind of a trick question because the Bible is tradition. You can't set the Bible against tradition because you don't know what the Bible is without tradition. In other words, there is a tradition that Christians have a Bible. We wouldn't know that if it weren't for tradition. We, we have a tradition that these books, out of many hundreds of religious books from those early centuries, 
are the ones that received inspiration. We have that tradition. We have, uh, and again, that comes by means of the, of the church. It didn't fall down from heaven, and it has not been communicated uh, by a special miracle in the sense that some council or something. I mean, yes, the councils it has the guarantee of God not to mislead the faithful, but uh, it, that's not an original mirac- miraculous gift of, of, like I said, holding your hands on the books like a psychic and deciding this one got it and this one didn't. That's not what happened. So the Bible is tradition. You, 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 you wouldn't have the Bible without it. The, the idea that we have a Bible is tradition, and the list of what books are in it is tradition. Also, the list that the, that the teaching of uh, Sola Scriptura, we, we don't formulate it that way in the Catholic Church, but we, we second the emotion. In other words, the, the Bible is the primary fount, and it's been declared as to be this by the church councils, the popes, all the rest. The Bible is, is our central source of the Word of God. In other words, yes, we have, a, we have some traditions, like, the, like what goes into the Bible, that come down to us from the apostles. But for the most part, as a, as a day-to-day working thing, the Bible is absolutely central. So, uh, uh, but that itself, the centrality of the Bible, the fact that our teachings, the teachings we give out from our pulpits needs to match up with the Bible, that's a tradition. You know, some, you know, whenever somebody says, well, show me this in the Bible, show me, you know, where Mary, today's the Feast of the Assumption, show me where in the Bible it says that Mary was assumed into heaven. Uh, one of the ways that some Catholics deal with that is to say, well, show me in the Bible where it says I have to show you. <laughs> There's no such verse, but uh, it's a way of expressing this idea. The tradition that I have to show you in the Bible is a Catholic tradition. Now, the, the assumption of Mary happened after the New Testament was finished, so uh, or we think so anyway. So uh, uh, it's extra biblical, and rather than unbiblical or non-biblical, but that's just a side note. <laughs> that's interesting, though, and I like how you underscore the centrality of the Bible because I think this is misunderstood in non-Catholic Christian communities. Right? the The Catholic Church is seen, and this is how I saw it at least, as this thing that. Um, wouldn't, you know, maybe put the Bible together, or I should say affirmed the Bible, the, the canon, but then kind of set it to the side and made up their own doctrine and dogma, but Mary and the saints and all these different kinds of things. But I like how you underscore, no, the Bible is, is central to Catholic teaching. Yeah, a- a- absolutely. Nothing that won't square with the Bible is, uh, is approved as Catholic teaching. Now, again, there are things that the Bible addresses only obliquely, like I say, if, if the church teaches, as she does, that uh, that Mary was assumed into heaven uh, after or at the time of her uh, falling asleep is the correct way to say it. Uh, you know, somewhat similar to what all of us believe happened to Moses or uh, Elijah. Uh, the church says we've got traditions to that effect, and uh, they're yes, they're not written in the Bible, but they're not. They can't be opposed to the Bible because the same people who told you that Mary was assumed into heaven told you that there is a Bible for Christians. And they gave you a list of what belongs in it. The two can't really be separated. The The Bible comes from the church. The Bible, uh, well, in, in the sense that the apostles were the original pastors of the church, in that sense, the New Testament was created by the church. Certainly the Bible has been 
preserved by the church. The Bible has the the traditions that Christians have to square their doctrine with the Bible come from the church, and the uh, uh, the sense that list of the contents page preeminently is the great proof that the Bible is tradition. You can't set the Bible against tradition because you don't even know what the Bible is without tradition. <laughs> you know, you've you've really circled around to something something that I find so interesting and. And I don't want to go too far afield here, but when you mentioned how these lists uh, Augustine has brought in and these lists of, of canonical books are, are drawn up and then they're sent to the Pope to, to kind of receive his stamp of approval. I, I think you, you said that, something to that effect. Am I, am I right? Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah that's the, the final uh, council. Second Council of Carthage uh, is the first time the... the the first official canon that the church ever produced. In other words, the first time the church ever sent out a decree saying this list and no others is in 492, I think, uh, A.D., nearly 400 years into the Christian era, 400 years since the Incarnation, is the first time the Christian church ever set a biblical contents page to writing. Well, my goodness, what were they doing before that? They were operating on tradition. <laughs> and what what I was circling around to, and this is what fascinates me, is a tradition that obviously held the chair of Peter, the Bishop of Rome, in a certain esteem. The tradition that held the Eucharist to be really the the flesh, you know, the blood, body, divinity, soul of of Christ. You know, the, uh, the how am I saying this properly? But the the church that held all these other traditions is the same church that affirmed the canon of the Bible, right? right? If we can trust the uh, church united to the Pope to tell us what belongs on the contents page, then maybe we can trust them about these other things, too. <laughs> Which is obviously something people like you and I have come to conclude. But I can understand non-Catholic listeners uh, needing to leave the jury out on that a little bit for the moment. I understand that. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where I that's where I certainly got to, right? I recognized that okay, this is the church that affirmed the canon of the Bible. I can't historically debate that. I mean, you could you could possibly look at some of these lists these heretical groups drew up and say, well, maybe they had it right and they don't have the Pope as their authority. But I think if we're being honest with history, it's the Catholic Church that affirmed the Bible, but then we have to look at all the other things they were affirming and doing and, and practicing. And those right. things were remarkably Catholic, right? Oh, yeah. Well, that's the larger argument about what the what the early church was like uh, as far as... this. this uh, just to give you a short answer to that, I wrote a book called The Apostasy That Wasn't, which is about the great apostasy theory that a lot of people hold to, the idea that when... Constantine allowed himself to be converted and made the uh, Catholic Church into the official religion of the Roman Empire, that uh, he uh, changed everything and, and brought in, uh, you know, that there's this radical break with the past and that the Church's teachings changed dramatically, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. In this book, I prove historically that that's a terrible, terribly bad misunderstanding of what actually happened. That That's why it's called the apostasy that wasn't. There was no great apostasy. But really, the best way to know that is to look at the writings of the fathers who lived before Constantine. 
The whole Constantine myth is predicated on the idea that we don't know what the early church taught. So if we don't like what the church was like after Constantine came along, we can say, well, he changed everything. There are thousands upon thousands of pages of writing from early Christian writers in the 325 years before Constantine. They're easily available online. You can go and start reading them tonight if you want to. They're there. And all of the ideas that people blame Constantine for introducing are there in the earliest church fathers. If you don't like the idea that baptism is regenerative, in other words, baptism now saves you, if that's, if that's an idea you don't like, I encourage you to go and read Justin and Ignatius and Hippolytus and Clement. And, uh, in other words, men who, who in many cases knew the apostles, were, were baptized by one of the apostles, apostolic men, etc. One of the clearest things in all of the writings of those early fathers is that they taught actual sacramental baptism, baptism regen- baptismal regeneration. So if there was an apostasy, it happened immediately. It didn't wait for Constantine 325 years later. So the the uh, uh, that's one of the great things that actually reading the early fathers does for you. It it, it allows you to uh, uh, to smell something fishy when you when you hear that uh, that you know the idea that the that the Eucharistic supper supper has the real presence of Christ in it, and that it's Constantine's fault that we started teaching this superstitious idea. Well, you know, it's there 200 years earlier, 250 years earlier. It's all there in black and white. And a lot of a lot of things are like like that. Yeah, it is. But it circles back to the same thing in my mind. You know, the idea that okay, this Catholic Church, you know, did all did these things aff- affirm the Bible? These early Church Fathers sound and look an awful lot like the Catholic Church sounds and looks today. I mean, that's that's that pebble in that shoe, I guess. That's that fishy smell. You start to smell and wonder if you're uh, in a church that really looks like the church that Jesus began, right? Yeah, absolutely. The best way to, and that's what did it for me. I mean, that's 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 what happened. When I found, just stumbled across accidentally, a big fat uh, collection of uh, books, small print, hundreds of pages called the Anti-Nicene Fathers, published by a Protestant publisher, by the way. I discovered it in a Protestant bookshop. I took these things home and started reading. I thought, my goodness, I, this is supposed to be the the uh, the period of the early church when people are huddled in catacombs and you can't know what they believed in, so you can just sort of imagine it. <laughs> when I got home and started reading all that fine fine print, you know, it's it's there in black and white. I mean, people people who knew the apostles sat down and wrote wrote letters and documents. Ir- Irenaeus was a disciple, Irenaeus, who was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of St. John the Apostle. In other words, that's a three-step, okay, let's make it four steps. Irenaeus was discipled by Polycarp, Polycarp was discipled by John, John was discipled by Jesus of Nazareth, the second person of the Trinity. <laughs> I've heard of him. <laughs> That's a, that's a four-man chain of custody. And Irenaeus wrote five books called Against Heresies, thick books, longer than Paul. In other words, there's more from Irenaeus than there is from St. Paul. 
he also wrote another book called The Proof of the Apostolic Preaching. We have literally hundreds of pages from Irenaeus. Now, I imagine that you, you might buck up yourself to believe that, uh, uh, that there was a great apostasy somewhere in that chain of four men. That takes pretty robust faith in uh, uh, a conspiracy theory. And there's really no reason for making that leap, except that you don't like what Irenaeus says. And what he says, I've I've read against heresies. It's fantastic. It's it's, it's thick. It's it's a it's a slog to get through. But what he says is very Catholic in its nature. Well, the first it's a slog because the first four books are him cataloging very carefully, being fair to and cataloging the beliefs of about a hundred Gnostic sects. Little weird little splinter groups. That's why the book's called Against Heresies. The first four books are him trying to be scrupulously fair to a bunch of nuts who didn't really deserve it. But, <laughs> but thank God Irenaeus was inspired by the spirit of charity. So if, if you're finding Irenaeus a slog, skip the first four books and cut right to number five. It's dynamite. <laughs> that's a, so book five that's of Irenaeus. A tip. And I think... Proof of the apostolic preaching is incredible. No, I haven't got to that one. Yet. So it was only it was only discovered it was only discovered uh, in the twentieth century. I mean, there were records that it had existed, but it was a lost book. But it was rediscovered in the twentieth century, and it's incredible. And it's got all sorts of things that would have made me really confused as an evangelical. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. So, what's the final word on where the Bible came from? How would you? Sum all this up. <laughs> <laughs> we may have to do uh, we may have to do another episode on that, Keith, because I, I just barely scratched the surface of uh, of some of the things that I uncovered in this book. Maybe I should just make this into a commercial. How about that? Read the book. <laughs> and that's um. You've seen the movie. Now read the book. That sounds good. They're fantastic <laughs> books. No, in, in all in all truth, they are fantastic books, and I definitely will pick this one up, and I encourage my listeners to as well. I'll keep you posted on the book. Again, it's called Scripture Wars, and it's due out this fall. That sounds good. Hey, well, thanks for being on the program. I appreciate your time. It's been really fun. I encourage listeners to check out your books. They're on Amazon, and your forthcoming book, Scripture Wars, is going to be due out in the fall. Thanks, Rod. Yep, later in the fall. Sounds good. Thanks for your time, and God bless. Oh, you too, buddy. And uh, uh, let's pray for each other. And I'm glad. I appreciate the work you're doing. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cordial Catholic Podcast. I hope you found the episode interesting and entertaining and educational as well. I know I sure did. I always learn something new talking to Rod, and hopefully you did too. Make sure to look up the show notes for this episode, either in whatever podcast app you use, or on our website at thecordialcatholic.com. I'll have links to all of Rod's books and links to articles that I've written on this topic as well. And make sure to keep watching us on Facebook or Twitter or wherever else you find us for a link to Rod's new book when it finally comes out in the fall. I'll probably have him back then as well if he'll come back to talk more about it then. It sounds very interesting. 
please make sure to leave ratings and reviews in iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever else you find this podcast. And thanks to all the people who are leaving ratings and reviews. We have a whole bunch of new ones coming in, and I'm so grateful to you guys because that helps signal to Apple's algorithm to push this show out to new people and to build and grow our audience. And that's very humbling and very exciting as well. Check us out on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Tuned In or Overcast or Last FM or Stitcher or wherever else you find fine podcasts. We're on Facebook at The Cordial Catholic, on Twitter at Cordial Catholic, and send your emails, complaints, grievances, or gripes to cordialcatholic at gmail.com. See you again next week. Thanks for listening, and God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.